chapter 1. John chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, we have some Bibles over here on the table. And if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. And we've got John Richter out there. He'll bring a Bible to you. If you need a Bible, just keep your hand raised nice and high. And John's going to bring around Bibles. We're in John chapter 1. Last week we started uh, the Gospel of John and just got through the first five verses. Today we're going to get through verses 6 through verse 34. And today's message is entitled, Behold the Lamb of God. And I'm going to go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your love. Thank you for your grace and thank you for your truth, your word. And as we study your word today, we want to hear from you. Uh, we don't want to hear from me, or we, we ask your spirit would be speaking to each of us and that you would be preparing our hearts to hear and receive from you. And we just ask that your name would be worshipped, your name would be glorified, and that you get all the credit today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I mentioned last week, we began John chapter 1. And we talked a lot about how the Apostle John had quite a transformation. You may recall how the Apostle John was at one point known as the son of thunder because of kind of his, you know, quick to, to be like, all right, Lord, can we call fire down from heaven on these guys? Because they didn't do what we thought they would. And he was ready to destroy. And yet, as he continued to know Jesus and he grew in his relationship with Jesus, there was quite a transformation, so much so that the Apostle John was then known as the Apostle of Love. And so he's the one that's writing this gospel and now I just want to quickly read through these first five verses that we covered last week. John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So these verses speak of how Jesus is not only eternal, but that He is the eternal God. Verse 3, All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. So Jesus is eternal, he is God, and he is also creator of all things. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Or, that last phrase can also be translated, the darkness could not extinguish it. And I love that. We talked about it last week, but I just wanted to touch on it again. Because the idea of Jesus being the light, and the darkness unable to extinguish or put out that light. Because when Jesus came to the earth, in a sense, he invaded the darkness. This is, you know, the fallen earth. And when Jesus comes in, the light invades and the darkness can try to fight it, but the darkness cannot extinguish it. And so, too, when you and I put our faith in Jesus, you might say our heart was filled with darkness, with our own sin, with our own failure. And yet, the moment you put your faith in Jesus, Jesus comes inside of your heart to live inside of you and now the light has gone inside of your heart and it conquers that darkness. Though we still struggle, we still, we still give in to that temptation sometimes, Jesus, the light, he cannot be extinguished. And so if you've put your faith in Jesus, then he continues to shine brightly in your heart, continuing to make you more and more like him. Jesus has already won the victory. And so now, in John chapter 1, in verses 6 through 13, we read about John the Baptist. And by the way, if you haven't noticed in your bulletin, there is a note sheet. The answers are filled in already, but if you like to follow along and add notes, you're welcome to do that. John chapter 1, verse 6. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. 
This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. So John the Baptist was sent by God to prepare people for Jesus' coming, so that more people would be ready to receive Jesus when he came. Verse 8, he, talking about John the Baptist, was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. Now in John chapter 1, the word and the light are both titles of Jesus, describing Jesus. We saw earlier how the word was with God and the word was God, but not so with John the Baptist. John the Baptist was sent by God, but he was not God. He was not the light. He was not the word. He's not Jesus. John was never called to be Jesus. He was simply called to be a witness, called to bear witness of Jesus who was to come. Now, this may come as a bit of a shock, but I have an announcement. You are not perfect. And I'm not either. But when I look at this passage of John the Baptist being called to bear witness of Jesus, I'm encouraged because John wasn't called to be perfect. He wasn't called to do things perfectly. He was called to point people to Jesus. And you and I, we're not called to be perfect. We're called to point people to Jesus. And we're going to struggle. We're going to fail. We're going we're to make mistakes. And yet, even in the midst of those times, we can still say, look, it's not about me. It's about Jesus. And he still loves me and cares for me, even though I'm not perfect. And we can still bear witness of Jesus, the true light. And so that first fill in the blank that's already filled in for you is God doesn't call us to be perfect, but he does call us to bear witness of him. Now back to our text in verse 9. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. You all know Jesus came, he was born of a virgin, he was born in the flesh, and yet the world did not recognize him as their creator, as God. Verse 11, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. You see, in general, the larger part of the Jewish community, the Jewish people, especially the Jewish leadership, they did not receive Jesus. They rejected Jesus, because he didn't do things they expected the Messiah to do. Verse 12 but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We get to become children of God. And think about this with me. God adopts you and I as his adopted sons, adopted daughters. He treats us with a perfect fatherly love. And he desires a relationship with you. Notice that according to verse 12, it says Jesus gives us the right to become children of God. It's not something we can earn or accomplish. It's simply something that we're given. And yet we do have to do something. It says there in verse 12, we must believe in his name. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. And now verses 14 through 18, the word became flesh. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. To me, this is one of the most amazing verses in all of scripture, because it speaks of the amazing fact that God, the creator, the all-powerful, all-knowing God, came 
to dwell among us. God could have become a human and then lived a kingly, you know, favorable life. He could have lived separate from the world in some lofty palace. But Jesus didn't do that. He not only came, but then he dwelt among us. He lived a normal life. He worked. He slept. He ate. He served. And then on top of those normal things of life, he added the miraculous. Not just his miracles, but his teaching and his love. Again, in verse 14, Jesus is called the only begotten of the Father. There's only one Son of God. We are called adopted sons, adopted daughters of the Lord. But Jesus is the only begotten of the Father. He's unique in that. Now, imagine for a moment that you drew a picture of somebody on a piece of paper. For me, it would look like this. Nice little stick figure. For my daughter, Ruby, it would look amazing. And it would not be a stick figure. It would have lots of details because she's an artist. But for me, it's a stick figure. Now imagine you've created this person. Imagine the difference between you and your creation. I mean, for me, it's pretty pathetic. It's two-dimensional. Can't move, can't talk. It can't escape the eight and a half by 11 piece of paper. And yet imagine if I was able to enter into my drawing and dwell with my creation. I'm setting aside my three-dimensional self. I'm setting aside all the, the characteristics that define me. And that kind of gives us a little glimpse of what God has done for you and I. In all that he set aside to enter into his creation and dwell among us. Why would he do that? Why would God set aside all of his power and knowledge and his ability and not just dwell among his creation, but then allow his creation to rebel against him, to mock him, to lie against him, to put him on trial and to crucify him? Why would he do that? Well, he did that in order to fulfill the law and to bring in the new covenant. And John the Apostle, he makes that point in these next few verses. Look with me at verse 15. It says, John, talking about John the Baptist, bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This is he, or this was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. Now, this is interesting because John the Baptist was actually about six months older than Jesus. And yet, John the Baptist says, he was before me, pointing to the fact that John the Baptist recognized Jesus is the Son of God. He is eternal. Verse 16, and of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. Grace for grace there in verse 16 can also be translated grace upon grace. The idea is that God's grace is inexhaustible. It does not run out. It continues going. But what is grace? Grace is simply getting something you don't deserve. Grace means God blesses us because he is good, not because we are good. That's what grace means. But God doesn't just give grace. He gives grace upon grace. It makes me think of those frozen yogurt machines where as long as you hold down that lever, the goodness keeps coming, right? And to me, that's just a picture of God's grace. Just keep that lever down and the grace keeps on coming, right? God drowns us in his Grace, grace upon grace. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
The law given through Moses is speaking of the Ten Commandments, the law of the Old Testament, the law that said nobody is righteous except for God. The, the law actually reveals our sin, showing us that we don't measure up. But Jesus, in his grace, he loves us anyway. Jesus came. When he came, he fulfilled the law of Moses by living a perfect and sinless life. You see, for Jesus alone, the law of Moses showed how perfect he was. For you and me and everybody else that has lived, is alive, or ever will live, the law shows us how we don't measure up, how we fall short. Then, after living that perfect sinless life, Jesus took the punishment of sin upon himself on the cross. And by doing so, he fulfills the law and brings in grace. And now the next verse, verse 18, it says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. You see, God the Father cannot be seen. He is spirit. But Jesus has declared God the Father to us through his life, his death, and his resurrection. You see, it says that Jesus brought grace and truth. And when Jesus did that, he declares the grace and truth of God the Father. Jesus is the image of God the Father. He reveals to us God the Father. Now, in all of this talk of law versus grace, and in comparing Moses with Jesus, I think it's good for us to stop and ask ourselves, whose image do we reflect? For us as Christians, we want to say, well, we reflect Jesus. He's the image that we reflect, the, the image of grace. And yet, even for me, when I look at my life, I sometimes realize, man, I act a lot more like Moses. You see, if we're like Moses, then we're focused more on behavior. We give people a list of do's and don'ts. That's where our focus is. If we're more like Jesus, then we love others despite their behavior. We love them in grace. We introduce them to the God who can change their hearts. You see, relationship always precedes behavior. Relationship always precedes behavior. What I mean by that is we should never expect the world to stop sinning or to change their lives or to give up their addictions in order to come to Jesus. That's backwards. You see, Jesus came for the sick, not the healthy. Jesus says, come to me where you're at. Come to me because I love you right now, in the midst of the mess that you're in. Come to me. And the moment we put our faith in Jesus, we begin that relationship with Jesus, then God works in our hearts. And he'll begin to change our desires, and he'll begin to change our behaviors. Relationship always precedes behavior. The idea of grace and Jesus saying, come to me where you're at, to me is one of the biggest differences between Christianity and every other religion. You see, religion says you must do good works in order to be saved. Jesus says, I've done the work. Just believe in me and be saved. To so many of us, that doesn't, that doesn't make sense because we live in a world that says, no, no, you don't get your paycheck first. You've got to go to work first. And you actually have to show up and do a good job. And yet Jesus says, I've done the work. Believe in me. I'll change your heart, but only after you've begun a relationship with me. Now look at verses 19 through 28. We read about the testimony of John the Baptist. Verse 19 says, Now this is the testimony of John. 
when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Now again, to clarify, John the Apostle is writing this gospel, but here in verse 19 and 20, he's talking about John the Baptist. And the religious leaders came to John the Baptist and they said, Who are you? And he said, I'm not the Christ. Now, Christ comes from a Greek word that means anointed one. Messiah comes from a Hebrew word that means the same thing, anointed one. And so when you see Christ or Messiah, they just mean anointed one. They speak of the promised one from the Old Testament who would come, the Redeemer from Israel, that would not just rescue and save Israel, but the whole world. And John the Baptist says, I am not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the anointed one. And verse 21, they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. It's like they're playing guess who here. And verse 22, then they said to him, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. The religious leaders really wanted to know who John the Baptist was. But John basically says, you don't need to know me. You need to know the one who's coming after me. Don't focus on me. Focus on him. And that's a great example for us, isn't it? Don't worry about us and our lives. Don't worry about who I am. Worry about Jesus. Verse 24, now those who were sent were from the Pharisees. You guys have heard of the Pharisees. To, to us, when we hear them, we hear the dun, dun, dun. You know, they're the bad guys, right? And yet, in the day, they were the most religious people. They were the ones who wanted so badly to obey God's law that they created thousands of other laws to make sure that they were right and accurate in obeying God's law. They cared so much about honoring the Lord. And so the Pharisees had come to John the Baptist. And again, verse 25, and they asked him saying, why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who, coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. So even with the Pharisees, the intimidating leading Pharisees, John points them towards Jesus. They say, who are you, John? And he says, I'm not the Messiah. Look to him. They said, what are you doing baptizing? And he said, don't worry about what I'm doing. Jesus is coming after me. Jesus is more important. I'm not even fit to be a servant of Jesus. So don't focus on me. Look to him. And now verses 29 through 34, John declares Jesus is God. Verse 29, the next day, John, again, John the Baptist here, he saw Jesus coming toward him. And he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, as in look, focus on Him. John calls Jesus the Lamb of God. You see, in the Old Testament, the Jews were commanded to sacrifice lambs as part of their worship to the Lord because it covered their sin. It reminded them that, number one, they had sinned. They blew it. Number two, innocent life suffered because of their sin. And number three, it pointed them to the future sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. 
And so John the Baptist, when he looks at Jesus and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God, John the Baptist recognizes why Jesus had come, why the Messiah had come. And it was to be a sacrifice. It was to die. He had come to die. And why? To pay for the sins of the world. Verse 30. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. John's saying, This is the one I've been talking about. This is the one we've been waiting for. Verse 31, John the Baptist says, I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. In other words, he's saying, I I wasn't sure who he was, but I knew I was called to baptize people with water to prepare the way for him. John knew his job. Verse 32, and John bore witness saying, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. John says, All I knew was I was called to baptize with water, and the one who sent me to baptize, God the Father, he told me, The one who you see the Holy Spirit descend upon and remain upon, that's the Messiah. And so John the Baptist is saying, that's what I was looking for, and that's what I saw happen to Jesus. He is the one. This is the one we're looking for. And he says it in verse 34. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. John the Baptist says, this is him. He's the Son of God. The question for you and I is, who do you say he is? Your answer to that question is of eternal significance. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. It's there in your note sheet. Jesus, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. You see, because Jesus fulfilled the law, he's wiped it out of the way. Let's imagine that you are on trial for your sin. Jesus is there, but Satan is there. Satan is called in Revelation the accuser of the brethren. Boy, he loves to accuse. And you know what he uses is the law. He uses the law to point out our sin. And Satan is standing there accusing you and I of our sin. And boy, he's got a long list for me. A long list of all the laws that I've broken, that I failed to upkeep. Jesus, in 1 John chapter 2, is called our advocate with the Father. Jesus is there, and he steps up, and he says, No, no, I've paid for those. He takes that long list from Satan, and he takes it, and he rips it up, and he says, I've already paid for those. Do you have any other charges? And Satan's left standing there, and he has nothing left in his hands. He has nothing else to accuse us with, because the law's been fulfilled in Jesus. And Jesus has brought in grace and truth. And so the courts adjourn. There's nothing left to do because the accuser has nothing left. That's the significance of what Jesus has done for you and I. Because on that cross, the law was nailed and it was wiped away because he paid for us. Our sin wiped away the law and now we relate to God 
by grace and truth. We look to him and say, Lord, I'm not worthy. I don't deserve it. I can't, I can't earn back anything you give me. And Jesus says, I know. It's great, isn't it? And I love you. And he wants a relationship with you and I. If you haven't yet believed in Jesus, then you're still your own advocate. You can imagine you're standing there in court and Satan's accusing you, but Jesus isn't there yet because you haven't asked him to be your Lord and your Savior. If you haven't done that yet, then please don't wait. Do so today. And for you and I who have already asked Jesus to be our Lord and our Savior, we're standing righteous, perfect in God's eyes. Not because we are good, but because he is good and he's clothed us with his own righteousness. But may we remember that we are under grace, not under the law. You see, we simply rest in what Jesus has done and we abide in him. We focus on him and he continues to change our hearts to be more and more like his image. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for all of your love for us. We're so thankful that you were willing to come and dwell among us, not just to show us how we should have lived, but, Lord, to take our place on the cross. Lord, you came to save us. Lord, we thank you that you offer salvation and your love and all good and perfect gifts that come from you, you offer those to us based on your goodness, not based on our own. Lord, we ask that you would please continue to make us more and more like you. Help us to bear your light to this world. Help us to point people to you and your love. Help us to recognize that we can still do that even though we're not perfect. God, we just ask that you would use us, this church family, use us as your hands and your feet in this world. Help us to love others as you love them. Help us to be full of grace and truth. Lord, thank you that Satan's left empty-handed and defeated, and he has nothing else to say against us. Lord, thank you for your victory. Lord, we love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and stand. Let's end in worship.